Hello and welcome to the American Cinema Foundation Movie Podcast. I am your host, Titus, and today in our Middle Brow series, I'm joined again by my good friend Pete Spiliakos for a conversation about Lethal Weapon, an unlikely Christmas movie, but a Shane Black movie and therefore a Christmas movie, a buddy cop action comedy, maybe the movie that started the genre or at any rate made it a very big success. Lethal Weapon was a, a major success and even got an Oscar nomination, strangely enough, in 1987, and it uh, started off a franchise that just got bigger and bigger. Little Weapon 2 was twice as successful and kept being a successful franchise well into the 90s. Gradually, it turned the Little Weapon story of Mel Gibson, Vietnam vet, crazy loner guy, grieving widower, and super cop, special forces soldier uh, doing Brazilian jiu-jitsu super cop, an anticipation, I suppose, of later developments. It turned him into a married man, it turned him into a comic figure in the series. And I think people eventually forgot that Little Weapon is a much darker, much grimmer story that starts with a weird suicide and somehow reflects writer Shane Black's concern with the agony of manliness and the broader concern in 80s America that maybe justice doesn't really matter in people's lives, at least not up until crazy men like Mel Gibson show up and make an issue of it. And so we will like to do in our Middle Brow series this sort of rewatching of movies and reappraisal where we look at it and try to say why this was a big success in the first place, not how we remember movies like Rocky or Rambo or what have you in retrospect, but what they were like at the time before they became big franchises and fan service, as people say in this kind of criticism. What chord they struck in America and did what nerve they hit. And nobody's better for that than Pete. Pete, we've been doing this for, I guess, four years now. It's been a long time for us doing our podcasts and constantly something new shows up just a month or two back on Twitter, we were talking about Lethal Weapon, and I thought, somehow we've never done a podcast on this. I love Lethal Weapon. I'm a great fan of Mel Gibson. I think he's underrated as an action actor, not just as an actor in general, and of course, also as a director later. So I thought this would be a great opportunity to talk about the career of Shane Black as well, and the tough Christmas story where there's an entire drama, sort of like It's a Wonderful Life has a very dark, very serious community and a personal manly drama, but not explosions, cops, killings, not this aspect of justice, violence, facing daring death and punishment. So I I think it's very much a conversation worth having, and I hope our audience will be with us for the ride. So Pete, tell me, how have you been, and how do you get thinking about Lethal Weapon as a serious object of conversation? Well, I've been good. I mean, I just got over COVID, but I've been good. And the reason I got sucked into Lethal Weapon is I was actually found a few minutes alone and a Lethal Weapon was on cable. And it wasn't at the beginning. It was like 10 minutes in. And I said to myself, wow, this is a really good scene. You know what? Why don't I just keep watching till there's a mediocre scene and then I'll stop? Problem is there's really no mediocre scenes. I mean, one scene after the other is just compelling. And I got sucked in and obviously I got started talking to you about it. You know, we started talking about what makes Lethal Weapon great. One of the things that makes, I mean, obviously this was a great Mel Gibson performance. And Danny Glover gives an an underrated performance also. But it's also a movie about the centrality of justice to these men. And Shane Black manages to bring out the centrality of justice to the story by constantly highlighting how different these two people are, how different Mel Gibson and Danny Glover are, while constantly reminding you in all the ways that they're similar. So basically it contrasts their, it highlights their similarities by constantly focusing on their differences. And when I say their, you know, their differences are 
are obvious. Mel Gibson's white and Danny Glover's black. Mel Gibson's a loner. Danny Glover is a family. Mel Gibson is kind of a renegade cop. Danny Glover is by the book cop. Everything about him is different except for one thing. Both of them, each in their own way, places justice above everything else. Now, the way that Mel Gibson does it is obvious. His career as a cop is literally the only thing keeping him alive. He wants to die. He wants to join his former wife. He wants the pain that he's in to go away. But he's got a job to do. And that job is his lifeline. Now, with Danny Glover, it's kind of uh, obscured in the story because Danny Glover is constantly telling you about how he's too old for this and how he doesn't want to do this anymore. But he does do it. And the movie tells you over and over again, Danny Glover does not have to do this. He's already earned his pension. He's got his house. He's got his boat. Got a wife that he loves. He's got kids that are nice. So Danny Glover could walk away from being a cop at any time, but he doesn't. In fact, Danny Glover pursues justice, not only at the risk of his own life, but even at the risk of safety of his own family, as it turns out. Because at the end of the day, him and Riggs are really the same. Well, the reason why they work as cops is because they are willing to choose justice over almost any other value. And one of the ways it's shown is that, and you see this later in a movie called L.A. Confidential, Danny Glover and Mel Gibson choose justice over success, just like the cops in L.A. Confidential choose justice over success. They solved the suicide that set off the movie. They didn't have to put it anymore. They could have just walked away and done something else, but they didn't because at the end of the day, they were both motivated about doing the right thing. But you'll see us even more more in Lethal Weapon 2. Lethal Weapon 2 is more explicit about it, but these guys are actually like one soul in two bodies that have really been separated by experience, but at the same time, they're very, very, very similar people. And that one of the things the movie does is keeps the balance where there's the bickering and there's the different backgrounds. But at the same time, these are two guys who understand each other very deeply because at the bottom, they share the same values. Yeah, I think that's true. And I think, you know, it's an underrated thing because people tend to think of cop buddies in the action comedy as almost caricature. They have to have contrasts so that it's funny, so that it gets weird. But no, they, they have to have these differences for two reasons. One of them is to show what the range there is in a police force, in any decent-sized city, what are the range of different characters there is in the ordinary American city, and therefore what the police force would have to draw on. And the other reason is because, as you say, the contrasts bring out what identifies them, what makes them cops. For them to be true cops, they, they do have to believe in justice in a completely unusual way. In that sense, a very idealistic movie. You'd think that if there were more people like that, America would not have terrible crime problems. I mean, various cities, various rural areas, there would be just enough of these people and it would work out. Some of the elation, some of the excitement about these characters and the series has to do with that. At some level, the audience, we're all hoping, you know, maybe it's true, maybe there are enough such people. And these horrible problems like late 80s or early 90s, is the last of that crime wave, all of it can be made to go away through these heroics. But that's not, I think, what the movie is trying to get at. I think it's trying to say not that you can solve all these problems or that it's imminent, much less, but that, as you say, you can understand better what justice is when you see people dedicated to it and all their fighting because of their differences points to this issue. What are they fighting about? What is the thing they have in common that they dispute? And therefore, what is this commitment to justice? As you said, Mel Gibson starts out a widow. He's almost crushed. And then that shows partly why he's so committed to justice. Everything we believe and love that's good about being human can be snatched away and in a way at random. And especially for manly men, it's something that, that causes outrage. And you can do two things about it, the movie teaches you. One of them is you could swallow a bullet and Mel Gibson is suicidal. He is trying to swallow a bullet. He does seem like he's doing his job 
more because he wants to die than because he wants to get it done, but he doesn't die. And of course, the other thing is you can find somebody else to kill and take out your anger on him. And so long as it's done with justice, then that makes you a hero. And Mel Gibson learns this sort of lesson, how to be American. Don't kill yourself, kill another guy who deserves it. Don't take it out on yourself. Don't wallow in self-pity. Go out there and do something. And then we could say, you know, do something productive. That's, you know, the paradox of justice for this greater society and why the audience is applauding. Doing destructive things is very productive in certain circumstances. Just like there are very few heroes, there are very few people who are really such a wicked, wicked thing that they need destroying. But destroying them for that reason really does go a long way. And so there's some kind of hope embodied in this guy that if he can get over his sort of understandable suicidal tendencies, I mean, sort of, because most of us did not lose a spouse. We don't know what that's like. But everybody fears to some extent, something like that happened. That's why people vote for law and order, as I guess we have seen again this year. The plausibility of this man's suffering somehow invests all of us with some grasp of why Mel Gibson in this movie believes in justice. It's because what is good and right sometimes fails. It's that there are terrible things that can ruin you at any moment. And we can't deal on an ordinary basis with that fear, with that anxiety. And therefore, we go do it at the movies. And as you say, that's also shown in the Danny Glover character. Morto has everything he could wish for. The house, the family, the respect of the community, kids, everything's working out. The Cosby family, but he's a cop in LA, you know. The Huxtables on the West Coast, at some point, they are threatened. At some point, his house is desecrated, you could say, almost say. Everybody's afraid of that. And this guy has to live out what everybody is afraid of, in, at least in those times when there's such high crime levels. The fact that everything that is good and lovable could be taken away from us, that can make people not merely fearful, but very angry. And that anger is somehow the major support of justice and why justice is fundamentally connected to punishment. And could say that the success of the action comedy was a national vote on, is punishment a good idea? Do we need men to go out and do punishment? And would we applaud? And the nation decided this whole thing, yes, of course we would, of course we would. But it also shows up in other ways. Like, you talk about, you know, your family being at risk. But that also shows what kind of person you are. Like, Danny Glover's friend from Vietnam says, you know, when Danny Glover says, you're going to testify, he says, no, I'm not. I got another kid. I'm not going to do it. They're going to come after my family. Well, Danny Glover at this point knows they're going to come after his family, but he does it anyway, which shows that, you know, once again, he values justice above these other things. Because once again, at the end of the day, if you're not willing to risk something for justice, then you're not going to get it. But it also shows up in other ways. With Mel Gibson, the connection between life and career or life and justice is unclear at the beginning of the movie. He has a vague idea that he can live for his job, at least for another day, which is why he puts the bullet down. But it's unclear what that actually means. But at the end of the movie, it's symbolized by the fight. And where does this fight happen? It happens in Murdoch's front lawn. And the thing is, in some ways, the fight is anticlimactic. The conspiracy that they're fighting against is over. There's a bunch of cops there. Mel Gibson could very easily step away and, you know, 50 guys are going to shoot Gary Busey and it's going to be over. But it's important for Mel Gibson that he wins this fight on his friend's front lawn at Christmas because it symbolizes everything that he's doing every day. This makes it clear it's his friend's house. It's Christmas. It's a physical fight. It's an actual hand-to-hand combat fight. It's not detective work trying to figure out who did the killer. But what it's expressing is what he does every day, which is what he does is he protects people. 
or he gets justice for people. And if he can do this today, then he can face the next day knowing that what he is doing matters, which is also, by the way, why Danny Glover says wait, because Danny Glover knows what he is going through at this point. And also he understands what this means to him. And this is basically him's way, one thing, it's his way of getting revenge for Danny Glover, for what happened to his family. But also it's his way of coming to terms with how he can go on, with how his job can provide meaning for him to continue in a way that was more clear to him than at the beginning of the movie. Yeah, I think that's a very good point. And Shane Black scripts tend to be exquisitely paced and prepared, a lot of foreshadowing, as people say now. But also, they just add this always this connection between the motivations of the characters and some aspect of why he thinks the audience will respond. You know, to be a good writer, you have to be a very good experimental psychologist. If you don't know, will the audience laugh here, cry here? Will they hold their breaths in anticipation? Then you can't get the reactions you need. You cannot get a good story. And so once the whole case is settled, then you get the climactic fight. And as you say, in a way, it doesn't seem like the stakes matter to the story, to the America on screen. The cops have solved the problem. LA can go back to being LA. It's done. But not, but not our protagonists, of course. There's a bad guy still around. And in a way, not the audience. Shane Black wants to bring this fight into the middle of suburbia. He wants to remind ordinary Americans what the stakes are. He wants them to take seriously these kinds of characters. All Shane Black movies take place at Christmas because somehow, whether it's even worth being human is what Christmas is all about. Is there any kind of providence? Why people turn to Jesus, but also is somehow about family and therefore the odd place of the man in the American family in, in the post-war situation where you don't need the national arm, you don't need tough guys around, seems like maybe men can be replaced. And therefore in all Shane Black scripts, somebody at some point says there are no heroes anymore. And then so by bringing these two heroes fighting the villain on the lawn of, of this perfectly nice suburban house in the suburbia of LA, he's trying to get the audience to take this more personally, to think, you know, this could happen right where you live. And in a way, you should wish that it does because it means at least there's a fighting chance. Somebody shows up to have this fight, somebody still has your back. And I think that further is supposed to remind people that if they lose this belief in heroes, they will lose the belief that there's anybody who will do this for them. After all, there are you know so many tens of millions of Americans live in places where they really don't believe anybody would do anything like this. Like they're fully resigned to think that whatever horror happens, it just happens. And it can be small rural places. It can be massive metropolises. This loss of hope is possible. Somehow uh, justice needs heroes and the heroes in turn need uh, an audience. They need a society. To take this back to the beginning of the movie, you see that Riggs is either going to kill himself or get fired. And then either way, the story doesn't happen anymore and we don't get heroes anymore. We've covered the suicide problem, but he could also get fired. His captain thinks that he's trying to get pension as a, a psych case. He's playing a psychopath for money. And uh, on the other hand, there is the precinct shrink. And she thinks he actually is a psychopath and he should be taken off his job. And so either uh, from the psychology point of view or on the other hand, just suspecting base pecuniary motives, it's not possible to think that this guy is just a man. He's a man in great psychological turmoil. 
But he does what he does because he's a manly man. And this is what manly men do. They protect whoever they feel deserves or whomever they feel they owe their protection. There's a great sense of, of belonging there. Riggs has this beautiful collie, right? It's because he is like a dog. To whomever he attaches, he becomes very protective of them. And in his situation, nobody cares about them. This is, again, the way in which Riggs and Murta are identical. Murta gets it. He realizes that this guy is as much trouble as everybody's afraid he is. But he gradually becomes open to the possibility that he's not crazy. He's just a, a man trying to do a job that's increasingly impossible for him to do for both personal and professional reasons. And so this friendship uh, ends up saving both their lives. That is, Danny Glover uh, would have gotten the case anyway, the case, the conspiracy that drives the story, the Hansucker uh, murder-suicide. But he would not have had somebody to save his life. He would have died on that case. And so they save each other's lives. And in a way, uh, they save this possibility of doing justice by facing deadly danger. And of course, once you see how dangerous things get in the story, you begin to see why other cops don't want to do this job. Why are you going to risk your life for this guy or for that thing? The various famous scenes like Mel Gibson jumping with a suicide guy from the top of a building onto the inflatable mattress there. You know, that's risky. Why would you risk your life this? way. Things can happen once you get on top of a building and there's no other way to talk people down. So uh, somebody's going to have to do it. But why are you going to do it for somebody else? For a perfect stranger? For a suicide case? It's crazy. This guy wants to die. Why should you risk your life along with him? The drug bust at the Christmas tree fair, all of these things show uh, somebody who's going to have to face these kinds of situations because this is the sort of stuff that happens nowadays. Who is going to do it? Uh, if you're reasonable, you don't do it. But, you know, is that reasonable? It doesn't end well for the community. You see all of these horrible uh, crime situations and the kind of loss of morality in the community. On the other hand, if you do it, you can't exactly be reasonable. These are somewhat crazy events. Even if Riggs had been perfectly sane, no personal drama, and done the job, he would have been just as suspicious because he does crazy things nobody else wants to do. But of course, if we're being realistic, you cannot ask a perfectly sane man to just do this. Danny Glover plays a perfectly sane man. He's a man's man. He's worried about aging, about his graying hair. He's worried about losing authority in his family. You know, he loves his family and they're uh, funny, but, but they also make fun of him all the time. They're constantly cutting him down to size. And that's not so easy to take for a man. And to some extent, he does his job because it's the only place where he gets to be a man and make decisions and prove himself. Of course, he does it to protect his families or the community more broadly, but he also does it because he's good at it and he is proud of it. It's damn impressive. But he needs somebody crazier than him to take some of these risks, not just because he's an older man and he's a younger man with more energy and less aware of his own mortality if he's going to take some of these risks. A lot of the job of being a policeman is better done by 20-somethings or 30-somethings than 40-somethings or somebody who just turns 50, as Murtaugh does at the beginning of the movie. You need these crazier people, but if they're going to do it, they're going to have to have some personal motive to do it. You cannot ask of these people and of these people alone to be perfect and selfless. And that means that they have to somehow in, in their character have a love of danger and a certain openness to violence. And in the case of Riggs, it's because he wants to take revenge. It's because he wants to somehow deal with this terrible suffering he's feeling. And the thing is, Danny Glover's character, Murda, is just as crazy as Riggs. It just expresses itself in a different way. There's a point, once again, where he's talking to his friend, the banker, we knew in Vietnam. And he says, they'll come after your family. You don't know how powerful these people are. And this is not an idle threat. 
because that guy is immediately shot by somebody who's hanging out of a goddamn helicopter. I mean, the thing is, this is taking on a conspiracy like this. That's much crazier than talking down as somebody who's suicidal on the top of a building. But Glover does it anyway, because once again, Glover should not have been surprised that they went after his family. The guy told him these people were after his family, and then these guys killed him in like this comically over-the-top, dramatic, hyper-competent way. So, you know, at this point, he should have, like, guessed what was coming next. But he did it anyway. That's at least as crazy as anything that Riggs does during the movie. Well, the strong distinction between being crazy, fighting, taking enormous risks that don't fit any cost-benefit analysis. That's crazy. But there's also wacky, which is just making Three Stooges noises while you poke somebody in the eye. Riggs is wacky, but they're both crazy. It just shows up in different ways. Murtaugh has the superficialities of bourgeois respectability. So we don't think of him as crazy, but if you actually think about the things that he does and the things that Riggs does, they're both nuts from a rational calculation perspective. You want to make your money with the least possible risk? Then you write off the suicide as just a suicide and you don't pursue it. You find out this is a giant CIA cartel cocaine conspiracy that kills everybody who stumbles onto it, then you walk away. If you're looking at it in terms of rational cost-benefit analysis, but neither one of them do that. When you said that Riggs goes up there and jumps off with the suicide guy, that fails the cost-benefit analysis test because Riggs could have got away with doing a lot less and he would still be collecting his paycheck at the end of the week. And he could have just stayed down there and said, yeah, don't jump or something. And if the guy jumps and he goes flat, you're still a cop. You've been reprimanded. You just, you did your job. Technically, your life at least will go on. You get checked. But he didn't do that. Now, the reason he didn't do it was because at the end of the day, he could not live with himself just doing the job that way. And by that, I mean, literally, if he was just going through the motions of not doing the job, then eating a bullet would have been better for him. And Murtaugh can't do that because he has a certain pride in doing his job and doing his job right. And he was willing to put everything on the line in order to achieve justice in the same way that Riggs does. It's just, it just ends up being expressed differently. Yeah, I think that's a very good point. And it's part of Shane Black's talent as a writer, as a student of manliness, as a student of the types of characters and what's really motivating them, that he shows the, even to be a decent man, you know, to, to the extent to which Murtaugh plays the ordinary, decent, middle-class, suburban dad, to be such a person is to assume at some level that you're doing right by your wife and your kids. All their jokes and, and their bad moods and, and everything else, they're surrounded by a protective wall, let's say. There's some kind of shield around your family where your wife and kids get to be the wife and kids without the kinds of thoughts that you might have. What is that protection? You know, you can't speak for everybody, but uh, I think that people who are decent at some level are not only capable, but even eager to become indignant and sometimes outraged at bad things happening. That requires, uh, on the one hand, punishment of the wicked, but on the other hand, it just requires foresight, it requires caution, it requires institutions that will sometimes prevent or at least mitigate violence, crime, so on and so forth. An illusion of invulnerability is necessary for ordinary middle-class life to continue simply because middle-class people believe in it. They want this to be true, and it's to some extent true, but it's not all of the truth. Some part of the truth about American life and human nature is that there will be crime, there will be violence, there will be horrors now and then. And therefore, there is a need for people who are going to do this. The ordinary decent man, if he were to think through it, he would be Murtaugh. He would be this Danny Glover character. 
he would be a guy who would rather risk his life and did risk his family than perpetrate a self-delusion, hide from what he knows to be true about the dangers out there. He wants to be a peaceful man. He wants to get a hobby. He wants to have a boat and maybe go out fishing or do something out there. Something away from society. You know, it's, it's a man's idea of meditation and peace. Go fishing, you know. All of life's struggles, all thoughts and most emotions simply cease. It's just you and the endless waters. It's very calming. But nobody looks for that kind of calming experience unless he has a deep experience of turmoil. He knows at some level that the truth is things are dangerous more often than we would like deadly. And somebody's going to have to deal with it. Simply on the basis of the ordinary experience of decent moral people, you need somebody like Murtaugh out there. And indeed, you cannot explain that in terms of cost benefit. You cannot explain that in terms of utilitarianism because whatever might work for society cannot work for the individuals who actually face these risks. The payoff is next to nothing. And it's certainly not special. You can get those payoffs somewhere else. The only thing that explains that is self-respect. There are men who do not lie to themselves that life is nice, but on the other hand, do not want to hide. And therefore, they will face these risks. And the ones who do it with some measure of caution or daring have a very good chance of succeeding. But of course, that also implies at some level that they are simply proud of their superior skills. They like being very good at what they do, like Riggs and Murtaugh are both very pleased with their excellent marksmanship. Now, the younger man is much better at it, but the older man is also very good at it and proud of it. And that also means that they do not flinch when they have to shoot. It's a very American thing. It's it's how the, the cops become the new cowboys, how the detective story becomes the new Western. But it's also a reminder that these virtues are necessary and yet very hard to find because we prefer a a more peaceful life. And that peaceful life might be civilized, but it might not. It might simply mean that we're hiding stuff from ourselves. Hence this typical Shane Black opening scene of the movie where you hear Jingle Bells Rock, which is a fake Christmas song, but it's pleasant. It's funny. People are used to it. It's kind of nostalgic at this point. This was 87, much more so now. And then we see a beautiful young girl in this creepy trance-like movement. is naked and she falls off and drops dead. Turns out we see that she's doing cocaine and it's just a baffling scene. Why is this girl dying? Obviously such things must happen. You know, part of freedom means there will be weird things out there and some of them self-destructive or destructive. But it takes some of the self-confidence or arrogance out of ordinary decent life. It reminds people that crazy things are happening and therefore somebody will have to investigate. And then this simple and baffling scene leads on to all the dangers later. Even by happenstance, even these two things, the girl is doing cocaine and then she's jumping off the building. Mel Gibson does both things, actually. At the beginning of the movie, both the cocaine and the jumping off the building. You have to be part of the crazy world if you're going to deal with it. That's, uh, to some extent, the difference between Riggs and Murtaugh. Riggs does cocaine and Murtaugh, I assume, never did. But what they have in common is the awareness that innocent people can be destroyed. The reason a movie that ends up with these CIA special forces shootouts starts with uh, some silly girl who somehow became corrupted, involved in porn and drugs and died. Is that in, in a free world, it's not clear what the steps are that lead from some crazy decisions or some stupid decisions to something very dangerous and wicked. And often weak people are exploited by very vicious people. But it's not clear what the connections are. Who should be deciding what in order to stop things from devolving to something terrible? And so the movie simply faces us with this terrible consequence, a rare thing, but shocking that such a thing happens when none of us would expect it to. And at the same time, revealing because we all want to see it on the movie screen. We all want to admit that this reality is out there. 
We just don't want to admit it in our lives. And so I think in this way, Shane Black is trying to say, we need these men. And there's a reason. They somehow belong to our type of society, just like the crazy stuff does. For America to remain America, you're going to need it to remain a middle-class, respectable nation, but with a better awareness of the dangers out there and maybe taking more responsibility for what's necessary to deal with these things. The movie is for justice and therefore in a way against innocence or arrogance. It doesn't want people to believe that it can be that easy. Somehow wants to encourage people to buy the ticket, take the ride, face the thrills, and somehow become, you know, it's an over-the-top ludicrous action comedy. But I think it is seriously trying to say this is what is required for ordinary decent life to go on. And also, you know, you talk about how Myrna has this, this really normal life. And he does. He's got the house and he's got the family, and he's got a boat, but he doesn't know how to use the boat at all, because the boat isn't really him. He understands Riggs a whole lot better than he understands the boat, because he's a lot more like Riggs than he is like the kind of guy who would just go off on a boat. And there's actually like uh, the guy who created Conan, Robert E. Howard, created another character called Solomon Kane. And Solomon Kane goes around the world fighting evil, slavers, evil spirits, all kinds of things. But in his mind, Solomon Cain is just a humble period who wants to go to his home and live a a retiring life. But all of these problems just keep jumping on his doorstep and he's got to solve them. Now, of course, the reality is Solomon Cain is constantly desperately looking for trouble. He derives meaning in his life from righting the world's wrongs. Like he's, he'll be going home and he'll see that there's a girl who's dead. And so he will spend the next five years of his life hunting down the rapist. And then the guy's like, who are you? And he's like, well, you know that girl you raped? I raped like 50 girls. What are you talking about? And he's like, well, yeah, I know, but I ran across one of them. He says, why are you doing this? I'm doing this for justice. Okay, well, he's doing it for justice, but he's also doing it for Solomon Cain because, you know, that's how he derives meaning in his life. And Murtaugh is the same way. Murtaugh does not want to go off on that boat. He got a boat because he feels like that's what he's supposed to do. And Solomon Cain describes himself as a humble Puritan who just wants to be at home and work in his field. And, oh, if I could just go back home, I, I don't have to do this stuff anymore. That would be great. No, it would suck. He just lying to himself in the same way that Murtaugh's lying to himself, that he wants to go off on his boat and he's too old for this. He, well, in the sense of, you know, Murtaugh says he's too old for this in the sense of exasperation. But in the reality is the last thing in the world he wants is to be too old for this. He dreads being too old for this. Murtaugh could literally quit anytime he wants. His money's all there. He doesn't have to do this for a paycheck anymore. He doesn't have to do anything for a paycheck anymore. But he continues to do it because that's how he derives meaning in his own way, just as much as how Riggs derives meaning from what he does. Yeah, I, I think that's exactly right. Murtaugh is obviously much better adjusted, as people say. You have to be well adjusted according to our psychology. But really, he's lucky in a way that this young man shows up and extends his life. There's nothing else for him to do that he would be really good at that would be any good. This is the only thing that is very impressive about him and distinctive. This is the sort of thing that allows him to stand up tall. And indeed, he sees it in Riggs much sooner than anybody else because at some level he wants that. And we presume by the way he comes to an understanding with Riggs that he's faced a lot of this question about violence and maybe the thought of suicide too. himself. Questions of integrity, of taking responsibility for yourself, of being your own man, somehow always will involve dealing with mortality. And it is not easy. Even in his moment of suicide, Riggs thinks it through like a professional, gets himself a hollow point bullet, but also wants to go out like a man commit suicide, say, as opposed to drinking yourself to death. Commit suicide is to take control. You know, maybe life makes no sense and you lose the only thing that made you human. 
but uh, you can at least go out your own way as a man. And so the movie, in all of these aspects, emphasizes the agony of manliness and at the same time, the, the great social need for it. It's a comedy because it fits these two seemingly misfit characters. A lot of the comedy, in a sense, is at the expense of the audience. People think these people are so different and it's so funny, but they're only laughing because they don't understand. Once you begin to understand, you see that there's a more serious problem, the action problem of the action comedy. These two guys need each other to be successful. And without each other, they might not have any very good reason to live. I mean, they might go on with life, but they would be in a certain way crippled or amputated because they could not act in the proper sense. They would be part of a society that, in order to go on, does not allow them to be fully human, to aspire to something heroic. These people are the kinds of people really excited to see on screen, but institutionally banned from existing, right? The possibility of people turning out to be Riggs or even Murtaugh is why we drug children in schools. And I don't know how many other things as a society we have ended up accepting. Maybe nobody ever decided it, but somehow it's happening in so many places. Why? Well, people get out of hand. Boys get out of hand. They become young men who go out of hand. If these people somehow get run of an institution, this could be a problem. We are split as a society between our admiration for the dangerous things daring men do. And on the other hand, the fear that these things might necessarily be good for us. And at any rate, we might not just take the excitement. It might be too much for us. We're in a certain sense always looking for an easier way out. You could say that what makes these guys so distinctive, so interesting and worth telling stories about is that they tend to look for the difficult way out. They're just not satisfied with the easy way out. In a scene, Murtaugh toys with the idea that maybe it's all a big misunderstanding. Maybe the one murder-suicide doesn't really lead to anything else. Why not? But can you really believe that? Can you really tell that to yourself and maintain your self-respect? It insults your intelligence and it insults your man. And Marta admits that, yeah, that's true. And so they're going to have to go do dangerous and deadly things. And of course, also the scene where they come to an agreement in a way with each other after Riggs jumps off the building and Marta pulls a gun on him for it. It shows that some of these things cannot be talked through. We can all wish that talk solves things. But both need to show the other how deadly serious they are about their way of doing the cop business. It's a standoff. Nobody wins. But it's also proof that in a way each needs that the other guy is serious, that the other guy has thought through life and death and is not joking around or being moralistic or what have you. It's not an ordinary man's idea of sane behavior, but I think it's arguably sane since what they do later in the movie will require them facing all those risks. And at the end of the day, when they meet each other, they're both unclear about what they want in their lives. Riggs is halfway through a death wish. Riggs is rushing towards a death that he really doesn't want. Murtaugh is rushing towards a retirement that he really doesn't want. But neither guy really knows that they don't want that. I mean, you have Riggs putting a gun in his mouth every night, seeing if that's the night where he's going to kill himself. You have Murtaugh, who constantly tells himself that he does not want to get into trouble that he does not want to take risks, that he wants to do the job badly. I mean, either the thing is, at the beginning of the movie, I mean, Murtaugh keeps telling you, not in so many words, that he either wants to stop doing the job or do the job half-ass, do the job in a way that's super, super safe, even if that's not necessarily the best way to do the job. And through their relationship with each other, they come to a better understanding of themselves, that Riggs doesn't really want to die. Riggs has a valuable social role that's worth living for, and that Murtaugh can pursue excellence and should pursue excellence. Because doing the job matters. And once again, in recognizing how much the other is motivated by doing the job well, about doing the right thing, about getting justice for victims, each of them becomes more themselves 
Yeah, I think that's true. That's, I think, maybe the most neglected aspect of this kind of storytelling. And it's not enough for society to tell you you're a good man. Like Murtaugh, everybody would applaud this guy. It's not enough for society to tell you that you're just too hot to handle like Riggs would be. You would need to hear the opinion of a man whom you can respect. And there are not many of those. There are certain things that society is not capable of doing any more than it's capable of adjudicating who's the heavyweight champ. You cannot applaud on that one. You cannot vote on it. You're just going to have to fight the other toughest guy and figure it out. Some of these things require a fight between equals or comparables. These people want to know what they're really made of, and they get to find out. And there you begin to see why society might be scared of such people and why we're much more willing to tolerate their presence on screen than in reality, in history books, than in our lives, maybe in imaginations of a sci-fi future, than in plans we might make for a vacation or what have you. Because when you see this, you know, it ends with a fight between this good guy and the bad guy that nobody in his right mind would fight. But, you know, it makes perfect sense that a really tough guy would do that. He would not accept the skepticism or worries, not to say cowardice of the ordinary person. He would want to prove himself. He might want to put his fist to the bad guy's face. There you see, he's fighting the other guy, and therefore, in a certain sense, they're the same. All conflict reveals a deeper similarity. You have to have something about which to fight, after all. And in that case, you could say it's, they're fighting about who is the manlier man, who is the tougher special forces operator, who is the, the dangerous guy. This is not something that Murtaugh could ever say, certainly not uh, given that, that the audience has a right to expect a certain character. But Riggs does come out and say it. When Murtaugh asks and how about you don't kill somebody for a day? How about that? I like you better. Rick says, you know, it's a big ask because I'm really, really good at killing. There was this one time in Laos, I killed a man at a thousand yards or something like that. He says, I'm about one of the eight people in the world who could have made that shot. And then he says, you know, it's supposed to be an impressive line and it is an impressive line where he says, it's the only thing I've ever been good at. It's also a deeply, deeply sad line, which basically expresses his loneliness and his inability to fit in anywhere else. His inability to find a social role that was meaningful anywhere else. And, you know, it expresses itself in its extreme unhappiness. And we see his wife had died off screen. And that was like his last tether to society. And he didn't want to live anymore. He didn't want to be that lonely anymore. And his loneliness is ameliorated partly through Murtaugh, through his family. Like he, Murtaugh's family likes him a lot. They like him more than Murtaugh, as far as I can tell. So that's one thing. But also the fight at the end is him coming to terms with his role. I mean, in society, which is, is a guard dog. He's protected. In this case, the abstract is concrete. It's a real house. It's Murtaugh's real family. And that's what can make it emotionally real to him. It can't become emotionally real to him through abstraction. In other words, if he just takes 10 steps back and lets the police either arrest Gary Busey or just shoot him, because why the hell not? I mean, he has it coming. That won't be real to him. It won't be emotionally real to him. Once again, that's why the fight was important. It wasn't him coming to terms with his past. It was him establishing how he can go on the next day. If I can do this, that concrete example of who I am and what I do, that can carry over to the less obvious ways of doing this thing, protecting people from bad guys in ways that are more abstract and that aren't as immediate as this. That was like the grounding for his new life, but there was no other way for him to do it other than for him to do it in this concrete, very physical way, which, by the way, like you said, 
that fight in Lethal Weapon 2 on Murtaugh's lawn, that fight is fully eight years ahead of its time in the context of American culture. I mean, I can't think of any other time in American culture where like the cross arm breaker was used. I mean, I actually think Frank Miller's Dark Knight used a cross arm breaker. He has Batman use a cross arm breaker in the Dark Knight, which was published a year earlier. But once again, that was a comic book. But using Brazilian jiu-jitsu. I mean, that, that fight looks a lot more like mixed martial arts as we have come to know it than virtually anything else that was available in American culture in, in 1987. One of the things that makes the movie great is the way that it balances these great elements where everything is much better than it needs to be. It's use of Brazilian jiu-jitsu before Brazilian jiu-jitsu became a staple of American political culture through UFC. It's just another thing that makes the movie just incredibly, incredibly memorable. Yeah, that's right. They got uh, Rorion Gracie, one of the Gracie family, to do consulting on the movie because obviously the producers and director Richard Donner were very, very serious about getting this stuff right. At some level, they got what the script was about and how this should be shown to the audience. And indeed, it's, a, it's an audience that was wowed, baffled by this. It was not familiar. They were not checking boxes. They were introducing stuff. And the sniper rifle he uses, these civilians did not have these sorts of things at the time. Uh, H&K marksman. That's that's. Another case for, for people who look at this stuff, as with the physical training and the rest of the stuff that later became routine, they hired great stuntsmen as well. It's just very careful about what violence is like and why it's so impressive and therefore trying to get it as uh, literally across the screen as possible. It's, I think, what gives the, the first movie a seriousness that the other ones don't really have and why it's uh, so much more of a gripping story. I, I think you're right that, the, you know, you look at this sort of excellence for destruction, and you wonder, as with all of these martial arts, what does this guy do when he goes home? You could say that this is saved by it being a comedy. If you put nice middle-class Murtaugh together with crazy living on the beach in the trailer rigs, you get Superman. You know, it's Clark Kent and Superman. This other guy pulls off something like a triathlon event at the end. There's a shooting, there's a running on the freeway, there's driving, then there's the, the fight. It's just one uh, skill after another at which he does also well. So it's a pinnacle of manly activity, but it's not reconcilable with ordinary middle class life. This is a very difficult thing to pull off for society. So it's very reasonable to look for institutional safeguards, to look for technological help, to look for all sorts of things rather than uh, figuring out whether you can get yourself a superman but it somehow does not work you know the institutional safeguards the makeshift the imitation of what these manly men deliver for justice it, the makeshift just isn't good enough and as i said i think the popularity of this kind of storytelling and and also the intelligence with which it's written and directed and uh, acted shows that these people all see something that's not part of ordinary experience that's way out there for the ordinary person but it's still very attractive and it, and it gets at something fundamental of, of, of human nature that we have lost. In a way, the great merit of the action comedy is not to show us heroes we can love and they become iconic for a generation or two or more. It's that it prevents people from turning the villains into iconic characters, which is what has happened since the action comedy collapsed. Most of the iconic characters at this point are, are villains or you know, the protagonists are some kind of sociopath. There's a reason for that. It's, it's the only place where excellence is identifiable. It's the only 
only people who don't live out conformism and therefore whose excellence would seem to be the real thing because it's not just your institutional backing. It's not just you following the life script. It's, it's going against all that and therefore it appeals to this spirited desire to rebel. You could say that the society of conformists is a society where nobody really believes in the social order or the law anymore. They just conform. And these sorts of hero versus villain matchups are supposed to ask that at some level. It's not a poll, but, you know, everybody votes with their wallet, with their applause, with what becomes memorable in the society. Which side are they really on? Do they really believe in any of these things? You're not being asked to act on it. Just, you know, honest. How do you feel about this? And I think it performed a great public service in, in, in the way in which middle-brow American art did for so long. And I think it's missed now. And in, even the writing of the movie has this sort of comic matchup. Shane Black's script was a lot more psychopathic than Lethal Weapon ended up being. But, you know, they brought in another writer to help. This guy, Jeffrey Bohm, who ended up writing Lethal Weapon 3 and did a lot of writing on Lethal Weapon 2 as well and got a credit on that, was brought in by the director Richard Donner to write some more jokes to lighten up the mood to make sure that the movie coheres once you cut out some of the torture some of the crazy scenes where snipers shoot children at the school all of that was cut from the movie uh, later the, the studio Warner they, they issued a DVD director's cut that had nothing to do with the director's cut where they added in this weird scene where Mel Gibson goes out and shoots up a sniper who was killing children at the school it's too much that's crazy what are you doing here but uh, there were these kinds of scenes that Shane Black had to be, in a way, persuaded to get rid of. And the result of this darker, more violent, and on the other hand, somewhat funnier, more down-to-earth combination of writers, like the combination of Riggs and Murtaugh, is a really winning combination in American storytelling, I would say. Well, also, the 1980s action comedy is really about crime. Now, the crime is usually abstracted through institutions or villains that won't get you in too much trouble, like art dealers or the CIA drug dealers. But at the end of the day, the emotions that are being manipulated, that are being called on, is public resentment and fear of crime. And once again, they're being channeled through these directions, but that's really the motor. It's a reactionary genre that sometimes goes out of its way to find non-reactionary villains in order to deflect criticism. Whereas the successor to the action comedy is the superhero movie. And the superhero movie is, the conflict is not about crime, the conflict is social forces, institutions, ideologies. So, I mean, if you look at Lethal Weapon 2, or you look at Beverly Hills Cop, it, it doesn't really matter which of the action comedies you have. At the end of the day, you're dealing with public concerns about street crime, only they're talking about it without talking about it. They're, they're talking about something different. But really, that's what, that's what everyone really worries about. You know, The Dark Knight, which is a street-level crime movie, very Michael Mann-influenced, it's about fighting against the ideology of nihilism. Does right and wrong even exist? And crime only exists as a metaphor for that. Whereas in Lethal Weapon 2, probably in Lethal Weapon, you have international drug dealers and cartels and CIA as a metaphor for your local drug dealer who's shooting up the place. But we don't want to talk about your local drug dealer because, you know, if we talk about your local drug dealer, if one thing, it's kind of cliched. You know, all, but at the same time, we'll be called racist. So they talk about something else. Whereas in superhero movies, you have these superheroes, they're not fighting straight crime. You know, in Thanos, you're fighting radical environmentalism. So once again, it's as crime receded, and it did recede, these kinds of movies that are dealing with public concerns about crime faded 
as public concerns about crime faded and people started fighting about other things. So it, what you have is instead of metaphors for fighting crime, you have like in Nico people like in the Dark Knight, you have crime as a metaphor for these philosophical concerns about whether right and wrong even exist. So I suspect that's one of the main reasons why the action cop comedy kind of faded. Because when crime goes away, you're not feeling these emotions. So there's not this sense of catharsis, which is one of the roles this movie plays. When Danny Glover shoots that guy, there's catharsis. But that's not because we all feel a lot of resentment about rogue CIA generals. I mean, they haven't done anything to me that I know of. It's catharsis about fear of street crime. It's about walking down the street and, you know, your friend got mugged and you're afraid you're going to be mugged. And God damn it, why doesn't somebody do something about this? This person did something about it now. But if you're not worried about that now and you haven't been worried about it for five years or 10 years or 20 years, because, you know, crime really did take a nosedive from like 1993 when it really started going down, despite the little bit in 2014, then it went back down in 2016. So we're talking an entire generation. Once you're distanced from the crime wave that started in the mid-1960s and that ended in the mid-1990s, it feels fake to reenact these kinds of feelings. There was a Jodie Foster movie that came out, what, 10 years ago? She's attacked, and now she's going to be a vigilante. It's Death Wish only with Jodie Foster. But Death Wish doesn't work if it's 40 years later, because it's an entirely different world. And the thing is, it's one thing for crime to be rampant, and cops not try, not even trying to solve crime. It's another thing where crime is a relatively rare misfortune. We treat it differently. It's unfortunate for you, and we would like to get just for you, but that doesn't mean you go out and you try to kill people you think are criminals. That's crazy. It's also crazy even as catharsis. Whereas if crime seems rampant and unpunished, then you know you still don't necessarily want to do that. You don't want to encourage it. It's bad. But at the same time, at the level of a piece of art, the catharsis becomes much more plausible, much more reasonable. Yeah, I think that's right. And I think it gets at a deeper issue about the necessities you have to face. As you're suggesting, it's almost impossible to argue for crazy behavior, for lawlessness, to put it more strictly. But there are moments when the laws won't do. There is such a thing as necessity that overcomes people. When it overcomes the society, it brings out all sorts of thoughts and questions about what it means to be American that uh, used to be dealt with in Westerns. Again, because that was a plausible situation for great violence down Main Street. And in a way, now that uh, crime has picked up so much just in the last couple of years, it becomes plausible again to look at movies like Death Wish or to look at Lethal Weapon and all these kinds of movies about crime. Ask ourselves, what is wrong with this country that we can't fix these problems? What is wrong with us? What might we need to do better and maybe to be better? Who do we admire really? But, uh, you know, one thing to say when the chips are down, then you might get an answer. It's another thing to say, well, the chips aren't down, but still, like, let's try to get the movies to work out a moral problem for us about the status of men. As you say, the emotions aren't there. The society is not aware of some urgent problem. Why are we supposed to get so excited? It's not at all plausible. And in a way, it's crazy when it's storytelling. It's because for there to be storytelling that what we call a blockbuster, for there to be storytelling that speaks to such a great audience, it has to be a big social phenomenon. If it's something people have never heard of, I don't think they're going to understand. And you could teach them about the issue or I don't know what, but that's not storytelling. That's not cinema. That's not bringing out these emotions and the social problems through dramatization. It's something completely different. There is a waxing and waning of these kinds of problems in society. I think you could say that that gets at the deepest issues in, in 
lethal weapon that America got a lot better in the 90s and for generations it was pretty impressive and you had uh, remarkable stories of crime dropping 80% in New York City but everywhere just remarkable 100,000 people who didn't get murdered because they didn't stay that bad who knows it's just very large numbers of people thank God, life's spared. But then the society got crazy again. That's the sort of thing that brings the deep issues about the heroic implications of ordinary decent life, because the society does get worse after it gets better, and it gets better after it gets worse. These problems are never really overcome. Part of why societies that get better, like 2000s America, get so much worse, like 22 uh, America, is the arrogance that comes with success, with normalcy. And, and then things get out of hand because people don't look for trouble on the one hand, and on the other hand, they just provoke trouble uh, unwittingly, at least sometimes. The result of it is that the deepest level at which these stories are gripping has to do with the inadequacy of ordinary society, the difference that is between what we do publicly. And what we would like to have happened, we are not capable of enough concerted action, what used to be called citizenship, to make sure that even problems like violent crime, which is the preserve of a very small number of very young men, not even that can be controlled. Yeah, and the thing is, at the end of the day, stories about rogue cops only make sense or only cathartic if the regular cops aren't doing their job. If the regular cops are doing their job, you don't need the catharsis, and rogue cops are actually a problem, not a solution. Now, in reality, even rogue cops are a solution, which is one of the reasons why these movies are, at the end of the day, they're at the end of the day more complaints about the situation rather than proposed solutions. Which, at the, you know, it's at the end, nobody really expects that Dirty Harry is going to solve all the world's problems by just torturing suspects. But it's a way of telling people, this is a problem. This is my way of screaming at you. This is a problem. This is my way of getting you to listen. It's not an alternative to institutional solutions. It's a demand for institutional solutions. When those institutional solutions were implemented, this genre largely went away. Because it didn't speak to circumstances in the same way that it had previously. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. I would put it that uh, these kinds of stories reveal the moral demand that must uh, be channeled institutionally. But of course, you know, institutions can very well be hijacked, partly by satisfying that moral demand. The institutions are still there. The moral demand has been satisfied. What are all these people going to do? They might find something to do that maybe they shouldn't be doing. So, the, you know, these are complex problems. Institutional politics is, is always rife with them. That would be an entirely different kind of story. But about hijacking institutions or institutions going becoming corrupt for lack of a purpose. There were quite a bit of this in the 90s about the U.S. military. What is the U.S. military going to do in a post-Cold War situation? It might go crazy. Not unknown to storytellers and to audiences. To some extent, middle-brow art educates people about these necessary parts of American life. It ain't never going to be that great. You might as well do some of the worrying on screen. And as you say, once the crime abated, really the problem went away. This was not urgent. The, the, the sorts of stuff you saw in this movies really could have been pulled from the headlines. Once that stops being plausible, the story stops being plausible. The issue is fundamentally still be there, but it might be a generation before it becomes urgent again. So at some point, these things just become, you could say, the memory of America and might lead people to think th about things in a more complex way. It might seem strange, but you know, if you're living in the good times and you watch Little Weapon and you get it, you do have a much more complete picture of American life. After all, in the lifetime of one American, there have been two or three of these periods of great violence turning into peace in the society. So these things uh, are, are part of experience, but are forgotten, and the art helps to preserve them.
them, just like it helps to in trying times to, to create the urgency necessary for social reform. At some level, it must, seeing this outrage on screen and indignant response to it, must encourage people to demand some of that in, in, in their political choices, which, of course, become institutional, legal, public action, nothing at the screen. Both as, as calling for public action and as preserving memory, there's a lot more to middle-brow art than people realize, I think. Also, I think that Lethal Weapon works better as a piece of art for later generations, compared to, say, Death Wish. Because, you know, Death Wish operates at the street level. Now, it's not exactly realistic. For one thing, the street gangs in Death Wish are much more Civil Rights Act compliant in their recruiting methods than most gangs were at the time. Uh, it's one of those things where, you know, you look at the gangs, they were applying very strict quotas to make sure that they had at least one white guy, one black guy, and one visibly Hispanic guy, just to make sure that they were not going to be subject to any Department of Justice investigations to see that they were discriminating on the base of race. So, and that really wasn't how gangs worked in that era. But at the same time, if you're not afraid of street crime in that way anymore, which several generations of Americans haven't been, it's tough to relate. You have to use your imagination really hard. Now, with Lethal Weapon, now, the stories, the CIA stories had been in the media and stuff like that. But the conflicts are pretty obviously fantastic. I mean, a banker gets shot through a window by a guy with hanging from a helicopter. I mean, it's just, this is not reality. Even though, once again, the emotions that are being channeled are about crime, a later generation can deal with it at the level of abstraction and symbols. In other words, you have these two guys who are all about justice, but neither one of them really understands themselves. And they're confronted with somebody who's superficially very different and there's conflict until they realize that actually they're very similar. They learn a lot about the other person, but they also learn even more about themselves. The whole thing is, I think it's lethal weapons abstraction from street crime, even though it's channeling the contemporary emotions and resentments of street crime makes it accessible to later generations because in that sense, it's not as rooted in the moment. The symbols are legible to later generations just because it is so abstracted in the same way that Shakespeare is now. Okay, it's not Shakespeare, but it's, it's follow me. It's legible to later generations because they're able to deal with it on a symbolic level, who this person is, who that person is, even if no, even if you don't necessarily know any Vietnam veterans anymore. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. I think that's a very good explanation of what people even mean when they call characters iconic or scenes iconic. And I think that's a great note to end our little weapon conversation on, Pete. Thanks very much for joining me on the podcast again. And let's do a coda, so to speak, another podcast on Lethal Weapon 2, the sequels, and all the problems involved in this genre that we've been alluding to here in the concluding segment. All right. Thanks a lot, Titus. It was a great time. All the best. Bye-bye.